Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Today we're continuing our series on the promises of God and we're looking at the promises of God's peace to us in Christ. A few days back I found myself with my eyes squinted my face pressed up against the computer screen, looking at a picture. You see, I had posted some stuff about uh, Ahmaud Arbery and my perspective on things. And I had decided that I wasn't gonna sit and wait for people to reply, but I was gonna walk away and come check it several hours later just to see uh, what was happening. And I did that throughout the day. And when I came back, I found that people were at each other's throat, that there was, differing perspectives and people lobbying jabs over the wall of their differing perspectives. And then I saw, I got to the point in this thread where this guy put a picture up from the videotape of uh, the incident with Arbery and um, a, a detail that he thought was important. And I found myself squinting to look at this little picture that was a zoomed in shot. So there I was zoomed in on these things. I, I know that many of you feel tired tired and frustrated during this time for various reasons. You want someone else to see your perspective. You want the other side to get what's important to you. You want to find some place to agree. You want to find, uh, just compromise on something here. Uh, Today though, rather than zooming in, I want to zoom out. I want to zoom out. You know, these situations are all too real in our society. Um, but, but so is the promise of God's peace to us in Jesus Christ. And today what I want to do is instead of zooming in on certain things, I want to zoom out and get a fresh picture from God from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So let's read that now. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and torn down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access and one spirit to the Father. So then, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, 
but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in him the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple and the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Amen. Humanity's biggest problem is separation. Since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, uh, we have been separated from God. But the separation we suffer under is not just between us and God, but between us and each other. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, their relationship with God was not only broken, but their relationship with each other. Now, that separation has infected everything, and that's what Paul gets at here in this in this chapter, in verse 11, he says, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. God has called his people to be a, a holy people. He had marked them with the mark of circumcision. He had given them ceremonial laws to keep themselves uh, separate and marked at his people as his people but they had often seen these things as marks of superiority over the nations rather than a remembrance to be a light to the nations and so these things became identity markers of their own superiority that separated the jewish people from the gentile people at that time the gentile people were separated from everything that god was doing in the world Verse, 11, verse 12, he says, At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. He's telling these Gentile believers in Ephesus that it's not just that to remember their life before they were saved, but to remember there was a time when Gentiles didn't even have the opportunity to be saved. They were outside of God's promises. They were outside of the promises to Abraham that he would bless his family and make a great nation out of his family. They were, they were outside of God's promises to Moses that he would take the people of Israel and make them his special treasure. They were outside of the promises to David that David's throne would be forever and his descendants would rule and rule and rule, and that God would align his power with David's throne. They were outside of those promises, and therefore outside of relationship with God, and outside of having any hope. They were separated. Well, that's the problem. Paul says here is the solution. The solution is that Jesus' death on the cross brings peace, both vertically and horizontally. In verse 13, Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is to say, in Christ we are united with him, and everything that is his is ours, and everything that happens to him happens to us just as Jesus died on the cross, so we died to our former selves and the penalty and power of sin in our life have been broken. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, we have been given new life and one day through Jesus Christ, we will rise up out of the tomb. 
But through all that Jesus has done for us, we have peace with God. Not an internal peaceful feeling, but the end of enmity between us and God through Jesus Christ. His blood was shed on our behalf, the blood of the new covenant, a, a new realm of promises that we're in that includes the Gentile, that says the identity marker aren't of the people of God aren't circumcision or, or Jewish cultural laws, but rather faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, everyone who is in Christ is part of the promises of God, including the promise of peace with God through Jesus Christ. The promises, though, this promise of peace is not just for us as individuals. Rather, it comes to us together. The promise of peace comes to us together. In verse 14, Paul writes, for he, Jesus, is our peace. Not he will be our peace, but he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In, in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem during the time of Herod, there were several different layers to the temple. At the very center was the Holy of Holies where God dwelled. And only one priest could go there once a year. Hidden behind a curtain was the presence of God. But as you got further out, the Jewish people were allowed to come in. But then outside of that was what was called the court of the Gentiles. And there was a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the, the further inner courts where the Jewish people could go. And that wall, Josephus, the historian reports, was about four and a half feet high to keep separation between the Jewish people worshiping and the Gentile people worshiping. Archaeologists have found signs that went on that wall, and it was very much a dividing wall of hostility because on that wall was written this, no foreigner is to enter within the railing of an enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. In other words, come past this wall of separation and meet your doom, Gentiles. That was part of the whole system of the ceremonial law where not only Gentiles but Jewish people had to cleanse themselves in order to get closer to God. But now through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are fully and completely cleansed from our sin. Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law. And just as the curtain in the temple was torn into, allowing us into the presence of God, so now Paul is saying the dividing wall of hostility, that wall saying you will die if you pass, that wall is destroyed. And now both Jew and Gentile are welcome into the presence of God together. What that results in is a new humanity, a new humanity who lives within this peace of God. In verse 15, it says, in his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create himself in himself one new man, one new humanity from the two resulting in peace. 
it's not just that these different groups come together and it's like, you know, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's that Jesus in himself is making a completely new kind of human. Combine Jewish and Gentile people together in one new family of God. It's like if two rivers or three rivers or four joined together at a certain point and made into a brand new river. It would be hard to discern what is what and where is coming from where, but you know that those waters would combine to make something new together. And see, the thing is, the promise of peace comes to us together, but it's also that the promise of peace brings us together. Look what Paul writes in verse 16. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Our peace with God vertically restores us and unites us horizontally. Uh, the promise of peace brings us together, to God, together. And what that means is we can't be who Jesus died for us to be without each other. We can't be who Jesus died for us to be alone. We must be it together. Well, I, I realize that in this moment, this kind of hits weird because you go, well, then where is the peace? It says here in verse 17, Jesus came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. In fact, in one of the verses I just read, it said that all this results in peace. And you go, well, where is the peace? There is so much conflict right now in our world and even in the church. There is so much division between people groups and ethnicities and social classes. Where is the peace? Well, I want, to under, I want you to understand what is meant by peace. Uh, peace means a harmony of two things coming together to, to make something new. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is a peaceful, easy feeling. If you have those two or three rivers coming together, at the point where they meet, it is not calm. There is conflict as water slushes up against water, as there's struggles between currents to move forward. But yet, though there is conflict and struggle, it is now a new river together. They have come together in peace, although it often feels violent and there is tension as the waters merge into one. And that is much what it is like in the body of Christ. Though through Jesus we have this peace and we are joined together, in the midst of that, there is conflict. We see that throughout the early church. In Acts chapter 6, there is conflict over partiality related to language. Here's what I mean. There was this group of Greek-speaking widows, and the church was making sure to take care of the poor. But because the Greek-speaking widows were a minority within that larger swash of people, they were left out of being taken care of. The distribution went to those uh, who, were, who were not Greek. And so what the church did was, first of all, a murmur arose. There was conflict. The rivers were coming together. But the church decided to find Greek-speaking deacons, servants who would make sure and take care of the widows. But in the midst of that, there was conflict. Galatians 2, we see conflict around excluding certain cultures. Uh, Peter begins eating just with Jewish people because 
their culture says we have to eat food a certain way in order to remain holy and clean. And the Gentiles didn't eat that way. And so Peter joins them in their hypocrisy. There is this conflict. And Paul steps in and says, man, that's not in line with the truth of the gospel. But the peace comes in the midst of conflict, and Peter repents. In Corinth, we see conflict around rich and poor not getting along about the Lord's Supper. In Romans 14, we see Jew and Gentile believer in the church in Rome having conflict around their inner consciences. The Jews are like, we've got to eat food this way in align with the law. And you need to, two Gentiles. And the Gentiles are like, Man, that's not how we see it. That's not how we feel conviction in our consciences. We see it completely different than you. And there's all of a sudden there's conflict in the midst of these two groups coming together in the church in Rome. I want to suggest to you something. Sometimes I think that the turmoil and the struggle and the conflict means we're actually getting somewhere in living out the peace of Christ. You know, the, when we think of peaceful water, we think of a pond, right? Like it's serene and there's trees in the background. But let me tell you, peaceful water isn't actually moving anywhere. The, the peace that we have in mind when we think of that water is stagnation. But Jesus is moving the church forward. And as he brings Jew and Gentile together, there is peace in the sense that they are coming together as one. But that produces all sorts of conflict and tensions. And I think when we work through those conflict and tensions as different groups of people, it means that we're actually getting somewhere. We're not going backwards, we're going forwards. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. If we're to live in that reality, it will be tough. And here's a few things that we have to hold on to. The first is that peace and unity does not mean uniformity. The Jewish Christians in the early church struggled if the Gentiles should become like them in order to be fully fledged followers of Jesus. And the answer that came back was no. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Jewish people are Jewish, Gentile people are Gentile, and yet we are united in Christ, though we are different. The second thing, though, is this. We are not called to neglect our cultural identity, but we are called to check our cultural identity. Fabidi Anyabile has a great illustration about this. He preached in a sermon uh, about this example about the NFL Pro Bowl. The NFL Pro Bowl is the game where all the all-stars gather together to play. I'm just going to read it to you because I think it's a great illustration of what we're talking about. We ought not be like players on the NFL all-star team. Every year the NFL has the all-star selection and they choose the best players from the league and they are appointed to their respective division's teams. It is interesting that each division's teams wears the same colored jersey. In other words, you have two teams, one wears blue or one wears, and the other wears red or something like that. It's striking that though they all wear the same jersey, they don't really play for that team. They all have different helmets. They wear the helmet of the team they really play for, the folks who pay them the big contract. So when they come to the all-star game, they don't really hit hard or run hard. They, they play gingerly because they don't want to mess up my contract they really play for the team they came from. 
In other words, they're not playing for the jersey, they're playing for the helmet. Thibodeau goes on and says, it strikes me that so often we're like NFL players on the all-star team. We wear jerseys that say Christ, but we wear a helmets that say our ethnicity or culture. That's the team we really play on. That's the side we're on. And after we finish this little thing where we come together, I'm going to go back and play with my squad. I'm not going to run hard with those not on my squad. He ends by saying we need to flip that, and it is the gospel that enables us to do that. You know, as we come together, we are all coming from different backgrounds. We all are wearing different football helmets depending on our background or our culture or our language or our social class. And yet we all wear this jersey that says Christ. And there's a real danger for us if we don't check the difference between that Christ jersey and whatever helmet we're wearing. And the greatest allegiance we have is to the team on our helmet and not to the family of God in Jesus Christ. That will keep us from actually investing in our church with people who are different than us because we feel a deeper allegiance to the helmet that we're wearing rather than the Christ that is listed on our jersey. So while we're not called to neglect our cultural identity, we are called to check it. Because God is ultimately making one new humanity with us together. One new humanity where we are renewed in the image of God. That means that together he is putting his character into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are being transformed as we get to know him. He makes us more like him. And what that means is we cannot neglect justice. Justice is not just a black thing. Justice is a God thing. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that the character of God comes through his giving of the law. And throughout the law, there is a concern over and over and over again for justice. In fact, there was four different people called the quartet of the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the refugee or the sojourner. And all the time God is reminding his people, give them justice. And by that, he doesn't mean punish them. He means restore them, care for them. Don't let them be taken advantage of because God cares about justice. And so if we really are going to be one new humanity together, we can't put justice to the side. We must address it. We must keep it on the table. We must keep it in the church because God is a God who deeply cares about justice. And with the situations like going on right now in Georgia with the loss and killing of Arbery, we can't step away from that and sweep that under the rug and move on. We have to be willing to, to cry tears over that thing we have to be willing to ask god to bring justice we have to mourn with those who mourn and we have to care about the things that god cares about because god deeply cares about justice and he delights in justice in the earth what that means is we have to recognize that there are walls of division still up between people there are walls around the issues of justice. We also have to be careful, whatever culture we're from, that we're not intentionally or unintentionally building new walls between groups of people. And we also need to be careful that we don't refuse to cross over walls that have already been torn down. Sometimes walls have been torn down already, but we refuse to cross. 
It, it reminds me of a story I heard about two different groups of deer. They were separated by the Iron Curtain, one in free Germany, one in Czech, in the Czech Republic that was controlled by the Soviet Union. And because that fence was there, that Iron Curtain separated these two deer, they got habituated and used to not crossing over to the other side because there was no way to go over. But in 1989, the wall fell. And 13 years later, in 2002, some scientists did a study on these deers, and they found that while the wall had been down for 13 years, neither of these groups of deer crossed over to the other side. The groups that were in free Germany did not cross over to the Czech Republic, even though the wall was down. The group that was in the Czech Republic did not cross over into free, into free Germany, even though the wall was down. There was one particular deer that they really focused on studying. And they, they put a GPS on this deer and they tracked the deer over a period of time and they had over 11,000 different GPS pinpoints on this one particular deer. The deer was in the, 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 the free Germany side of the fence. And though the fence was down, they found that this deer would come right up to the fence, but never, ever crossed over the line. The fence wasn't up. The fence wasn't there, but they never crossed the line. What was even more interesting was that this particular deer had been born 18 years after the Iron Curtain came down. They had lived their whole life without the fence there, yet they were so used to not crossing the fence and seeing others not cross the fence that they didn't cross the fence as well. It makes me wonder, if we were to look at the GPS points in our life, would, would it show that we are crossing the fence to reach out to those who are not like us? Would it show that we're coming right up to the fence but not risking it? And let me tell you, it is risky. Or would it show that we're completely staying apart from others? This is not the way things should be in the body of Christ, in, in the body that has the peace of Christ with it. We should be those who recognize that walls are up and try and tear them down. We should be those who don't build new walls, but also those who say, I am going to cross over this line because of what Jesus has done. And that person on the other side is my brother and sister in Christ. Because we are together. Uh, we might not feel that. We might not see it. But from God's perspective, we are one and we live in the peace of God together. Verse 18 says, for through him, Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, there are divisions down here that are real. And yet many people who are divided down here on earth kneel before their father and their prayers simultaneously are heard before the throne room of God together. We are inhabited by one spirit and the same God who sits on the throne hears all of our prayers of those who are in Jesus Christ. We are together in God. And so, therefore, verse 19 says, we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. 
Maybe that's a helpful point for us. One of the reasons I feel like people divide is because they can't understand another person's story. They can't see things from their perspective and no one is willing to hear the other person out. And it just feels like we're too different. And we are different. Yet, we are part of the same story. We are fellow citizens. We are part of God's blended family. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we most passionate about? What story do we see ourselves in? Let me challenge you here. If make America great again is what you're most passionate about, rather than being part of the kingdom of God on earth, you are missing it. You are missing out. If your greatest passion or your greatest sense of self comes from being part of a certain group rather than being part of God's family as his beloved child, you are missing it. You are missing out. The church, the the very touch point of God's purposes on earth, the, the people who are living in that promise of peace and trying to figure it out despite conflict and tension and setback, We are at the very center of what God is doing on earth. So don't just look at this beautiful picture of peace and say, it doesn't apply to me. Don't just look at this beautiful picture of peace and say, it's not applicable to us right now. This is the picture that God wants us to see in the midst of unjust killings. This is the picture that God wants to see when we're ready to write someone off. This is the picture that God wants us to see and hold on to is what the church should be and rooted in. And as we grow together, we have that promise of peace with us. I love the language that Paul ends this chapter with because it reminds us that the church is in process. He says, first of all, it was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. He's saying it, it has a foundation, and the foundation of the church is not our political viewpoints. It's not our cultural heritage. It's not our perspective on certain situations. The the foundation of the church is built on the testimony about Jesus Christ, who hung on the cross for your and my sins, who was put in the tomb, and who defeated death by kicking open that rock and coming back to life. The apostles, the eyewitnesses who saw him and testified about him, That is what the church is built on, with the very center of that being Jesus Christ himself. We stand on him and we're built on him. Yet, yet we are under construction. We are a building project. We are growing. In verse 21 it says, In him, in Jesus, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are a construction site. We experience growing pains. We are a people who gather to worship, but we're not where we need to be yet. But God is committed to grow us. So don't write off the church just because it's not where you think it should be. God knows it's not where where it should be. And we know that the church is not where it should be. But we know that God is committed to get us there. In Ephesians 4... Paul says something again, that we are growing up together. But here's what he says. He's here, he says, here's what God uses to grow the church. It's not the pastors. It's that the pastors equip the saints for works of ministry. In other words, what grows the church, what God uses to grow the church, is when the people of God use their spiritual gifts. 
The people of God use their spiritual gifts. So listen, if you look at the church and you say, man, it's got so much room to grow in living out the peace of God with different groups living together. Don't just sit back and watch that and critique it. Go, listen, I want to use my spiritual gift to help us get there because that is what God uses. He uses the, the, the works of ministry of the saints, but he also uses speaking the truth in love. This is what he says in Ephesians 4, truthing in love. Part of what grows the church is honest talk, truthing in love. Listen, love doesn't hide truth. Some of these issues that we're talking about today are hard to talk about, but it is not loving if we just sweep them under the carpet and move on. But it's not just that we have to be honest. We have to speak the truth in love, in love. You know, sometimes we can speak the truth in revenge. We can speak the truth in anger. We can speak the truth because it feels cathartic. But Paul calls us to speak the truth in love with that agape divine love that is so concerned with the other person. You're willing to do whatever it takes to sacrifice for them. The church grows up through the works of ministry, through speaking the truth in love and through the teaching of true doctrine, not false doctrine. That's ultimately what he's getting at with truthing in love is that we're to, 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 to discern between what is true about God and Jesus and what is false through what this tells us. And through those three things, the church grows in maturity. It grows into the image of Christ. It lives in that peace together. Paul ends in verse 22 by saying, in him, in Jesus, you are being built together. Not you're done being built, but you are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. I love the irony. He finishes with temple language. Do you remember the beginning of this chapter where he said the Jews and the Gentiles were split in the temple? It's not just that through the gospel now we have, uh, like Jews and Gentiles can both go and be close to God. It is that they together are the new temple, God's holy dwelling place on earth. Together, Jew and Gentile, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, rich, poor, in Jesus Christ, we are God's home on earth. Can you, can you behold that mystery? Can you sit in awe of that picture for just a moment? That means that he's utterly committed to us if he's willing to live in us together. We are at the center of his very purposes. We are the people who have received his promise of peace. Hold on to that. Hold on to that in your frustration. Hold on to that in your despair. Hold on to that if you feel hopeless because God has not given up. God has not given up. Zoom out for a moment and look at this wonderful picture of the promise of peace in Jesus Christ to Jew and Gentile and every man, woman, and child who commits their life to Jesus Christ. I know we're not there. I know we have room to grow. I'm learning these things as we go, but I want to encourage you. Zoom out for a moment and look at this picture. Will you work to live this out with me? Will you work to live this picture of the promise of peace out with me? We have a long way to go, but God is committed to this. And when I sit in that, I have new energy and new hope and new perspective. 
Let's forge on together, committed to this promise of peace. Conflict will come. Trials will come. Situations cause will come up that cause us to feel like we can't be together anymore. But God is committed, and the promise of peace is real. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that for this wonderful promise of peace. We pray that you would infuse it into our minds and hearts, that we might live in your uh, commitment, that we might live as the church, that we might be able to have tough conversations where people want to avoid them, that we might be able to stand up for justice when we want to be silent, that we might be able to press on when we're tired. We ask all this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.